one of the wisest people of all time in Scripture is Solomon, the king after David. And Solomon set about on a philosophical and scientific journey to discover the meaning of life. And he basically came to this conclusion from an empirical perspective, a purely scientific observation. Life is meaningless. I have seen everything that is under the sun, he wrote, and behold, it is all vanity, a striving after the wind. He had all power in that day and age. He had access to every bit of pleasure you could possibly want. He had all the money. He had done great things in work. He had accomplished and built many things. But from a purely empirical, meaning just what can I observe, perspective, his conclusion was life is meaningless. It's all a vanity, a striving after the wind. Paul, in Corinthians, seems to suggest the opposite. Be steadfast and immovable, he concludes, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now what's the difference between what Paul is saying and what Solomon is saying? Solomon was looking from a purely physical, scientific perspective. Paul was looking from the perspective of faith in a certain end. When he looked at the eternity that was before him because of the Christ he believed in, he said, your labor is not in vain. Paul claims there is a purpose, and where it's all going matters. And I would suggest that here and throughout the writings of Paul in the New Testament, our view of the ends, and actually this is true outside of Christianity too, our view of the ends, where it's all going, profoundly shapes our attitudes, our actions, and our priorities in the present life. What you believe about where it's all going profoundly shapes how you live your life. One view of what happens at the end is that there's nothing. You get to the end of this life, 30, 60, 80 years, and that's it. This is it. And that affects your approach to life. Because basically it means you have to do today what makes you happy, because this is all there is. And maybe be nice. But you actually have no reason to be nice, other than maybe you'll be happier if you are. There's another view of the end that's in Christian circles, and I don't agree with it, but I'm just going to lay it out there. It's the idea of the rapture. Uh, it's a newer theology. It actually is only 160 years old, and there's not much scripture attesting to it. But the problem with it, one of the problems to me, is that it's about escaping this life and the suffering and the challenges of this world. And it creates a view of this life, which is simply be good enough to get in. If you believe hard enough, if you are good enough, if you avoid doing bad stuff, bide your time and you will escape. But it also has a corollary to it, which is this world doesn't matter. It's all going to burn up anyhow. The only thing that matters is the spiritual, the soul. There's another view that's common amongst people who call themselves Christians. It's a very American view of heaven being somewhere up there. But we have this distant view that's sort of embedded in Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life to things that we saw in cartoons growing up of bouncing around on clouds and playing harps. And the problem is that is a very hard view to get excited about. I know that there's the whole, like, we're going to go sing to the Lord and we're going to be part of a chorus. And, like, I like singing and I like music. But after some point, I'm like, I'm done with the harp. And I'm like, an eternity of that? 
I know, I know, the harp is beautiful, and it's a wonderful, and s there's actually gifted people in playing an, an instrument like that. I, I don't want to play even a guitar for eternity. And the problem with that is I simply can't relate to it, and I think most people feel the same way. We can't relate to our view of heaven. And the problem is life is hard now. And we constantly lose sight of an end that has any impact or meaning to our day-to-day. So I see it in my own life, just in general. I am most anxious when I lose sight of the ends. So I am fearful of my kids and their future and what's going on in their life, or I'm fearful of money and how we're going to make ends meet, or I'm fearful of health, or I'm fearful of people that I care about and their health, or I'm fearful about the future, the future of my work, of my, you know, those fears and anxieties, they're actually built on a very weak view of eternity. Or that feeds it, I should say. It makes it a lot easier. It's also true that I'm more selfish the more I lose sight of an eternal perspective. Why? Because it's very easy, depending on what's happening in your life, to say, this is just not fair. My life is harder than others. I don't deserve this, or I deserve something else. And so we will make choices on a day-to-day -day basis to feed our own ego or need or pleasure. Because this is what makes me happy, and this is what I want right now. And any amount of challenge is just something to be avoided. Because I've lost sight of the perspective of eternity. That even if this entire life, your 50, your 80 years, is incredibly challenging, the eternity that God lays out is a source of hope and power to say, no, I don't need to live selfishly or with anxiety. But the problem is, I constantly do. You probably do too. We're selfish, we're anxious people. We don't have a lot of peace and we lose sight of hope constantly because our view of eternity is too weak. In other words, what Paul is trying to say is very true, that our view of the ends matters. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is trying to lay out the Christian and gospel and Christ-oriented version of where it's all going and how it has an impact on our lives. And the reason he's doing so is because the Corinthian church had completely lost sight of the full picture of what God did in Jesus Christ. They were downplaying or dismissing the future resurrection of all things. The resurrection and restoration of all things. They had lost sight of that. They believed in Jesus' resurrection, but they didn't think there was a resurrection at the end. And basically what it meant was they believed in salvation is now. So Jesus dies and rises again so that you can be forgiven and have freedom. And because you're forgiven and have freedom by grace, do whatever you want. And they did. And they had lost sight of all that God had laid out and the life in store for them when they lived in light of the resurrection to come. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, lays out that Jesus' resurrection on Easter morning is central to all that God has done for us, which the Corinthians believed. But the final resurrection, of which Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, is central to all that God is doing and that he wants to do through us and is calling us to. In other words, understanding where it is going 
has implications for your life right now. Let's go ahead and read some of what Paul argues, starting from the the statement that Jesus is risen and this matters. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the first portion or a portion of the Apostles' Creed that comes out later, right? Christ has died, Christ is risen. And then he goes on to explain what goes on, what happens as a result of that in verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul is grounding his argument in the resurrection of Jesus and its implications all the way back in the creation narrative. He says, look, there was Adam, now there is Jesus. Through Adam, sin and death and the fall were brought into our lives. That's the lives we live now. We live as a result of a fallen and broken humanity, but Jesus has come entering that fallen and broken humanity and undoes and reverses the effects of the fall. The second Adam, known as Jesus, brings life, freedom, forgiveness. But God's aim, and especially we see this because he's grounding it back in Genesis 1, is not just escape, it is renewal. It is new creation. It is the restoration of all things as they were intended before the fall. In other words, our hope for the resurrection, the final resurrection, is not about clouds and angel wings for us. It's not about that Eastern view of nirvana where you kind of meld into the universe and disappear. The Christian view is actually of a very real physical resurrection to a new creation life. God is going to restore all things. And this has implications for our life now. N.T. Wright sums up how it has implications when he writes, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come. An event has occurred as a result of which the world is a different place and humans have possibility to be a different kind of people. Jesus' resurrection and the future resurrection have implications for our lives now and ongoing. And the ongoing is talked about in verses 42 through 44 and then again in 52, so I'll read those. Paul, talking about the future resurrection of the dead, writes, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then he goes on in verse 52 to say, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What's interesting that Paul is doing here, and that's a little bit confusing just reading it through, and you're hearing it for the first time or second time, 
is that Paul is doing something he rarely does. Several commentators point this out. There is a way of repeating things in the Hebrew writing, and you see this in the Psalms where there's couplets, where the first half of a line of a Psalm is the exact same as the second, just slightly different wording. Paul almost never does this. He is constantly building his arguments like a good Western uh, lawyer. But here, he is repetitive. He's using a Hebrew repetition um, mode of speaking and writing in order to emphasize something. He's emphasizing the bodily resurrection is a physical resurrection against what the Corinthians believed. And basically he's saying there is continuity between the life you're living right now and the life you will live one day. Yes, there is discontinuity because you're not an eternal creature fully really yet. But what you are right now is the seed of what you will become. And that's why he uses the word sown. And most of us aren't farmers, um, but sowing is actually planting seeds, right? And he makes the argument here that the idea is this. If you take an acorn, you know, we've got these acorns all over the place around here. You take an acorn, you know, it's inch, two inches big. It has the potential to become an 80-foot oak tree, doesn't it? Something inside of that has the possibility of becoming that tree. There is continuity between the acorn and the tree. One is far grander, far better, but there is connection. The acorn does not become a minivan. There's continuity. And Paul is saying, <laughs> I am here to elevate this physical life that you live right now. The life you live with your friends and family, eat, drink, work, sleep, the joys of life, the sorrows of life have deeper meaning than the Greeks ever were willing to put on it. What we do in this life matters. There is continuity. In 2 Corinthians 5, he uses the language of a tent and a house as another metaphor that's a similar thing where he's saying, right now, your life in this body is like living in a tent. One day you will dwell in a big house, right? And so the best of this life, think about it. You might have a great day, a great night. You might have a great season of your life. Health, your, your job, your relationships, everything's going really well. At the very best, at its very best, life right now is like living, living in a tent, don't think that's all there is. There is a house to come that you're going to live in. And most of us, 99.9% .9 of us, would not choose to live in a tent. I lived in a tent all summer in college. Since then, I've decided I live in hotels if I'm going somewhere. Some people do crazy things and will go live in a tent for a night. You know, there was a Chick-fil-A that just opened in Vienna. And there were some people, like grown men, adults, <laughs> half a century old, who decided to spend the night in a tent on a cement floor with incredibly bright lights. There was this picture on social media that I saw the other day <laughs> of these two guys, who were far too old to be playing kids' games, wearing cow pants and hats they stole from Eastern Europe, and I'm sure they had a good time to get their free sandwich. But I cannot imagine living there 
for the rest of your life and saying, this is as good as life is. I mean, maybe in that picture it was. I mean, don't get me wrong. The resurrection says this physical life is good and it matters. But this is not all there is. It is an appetizer, a foretaste of what's to come. The best of this life is like walking into your mom's house or grandmother's house and smelling the Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner. But that's all you do is this life. Eternity is sitting down at the table with your family or friends and eating to your full. The best of this life is like a musical score on a piece of paper. You can see all the notes. You can have a sense of where it's going. Eternity is hearing the symphony play the score, and you're part of the symphony. This has implications for our work and our relationships and our joys and our sorrows and all we do. And the hope of it all is built on the death of death in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 54, Paul goes on to say, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law moral righteousness but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ Paul is saying Jesus invades and overthrows the old order of things defeating death and he's mocking death here but death is not just physical death the way that Paul is using it here is death in all of its symbolic richness it is sin and brokenness and sickness, and sorrow, and suffering, and evil, and Satan. It is all the things that we want to be done with. And death, physically. Victory has been won, is what Paul says. And yet, and yet, you know, that's not realized in full. Sin, suffering, and evil, sickness, and physical death have not been done away with in full. And that's why we live in what theologians call the already, not yet. The foretaste of what God has done in Jesus Christ, but not yet realizing it in full. Paul's point is that your hope as a believer in Christ is not just a future one-day hope. You know, endure now. I know life is horrible. Just endure now. But don't worry, you'll escape and get to go and bounce around on clouds. Rather, Paul is saying, despite the discontinuity between this life and the one to come, there is continuity. In your present bodily life in this world and your future new creation resurrection life have enough continuity that there is purpose and meaning and direction in how we live our life now. You can experience part in anticipation of full. And this has implications for our life. The death of death 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ calls us to live now in anticipation of what we will experience in heaven. It calls us to live now with joy and purpose and hope that will one day be ours in full. There is a joy that is grounded in the hope of the resurrection that pushes against religious asceticism and moralistic ways of thinking. You know, in religious moralistic ways of thinking, it's your job is to avoid the bad so that you can get to heaven. Don't do bad things so that you can get to heaven. It's sort of the Ned Flanders approach. If, if Homer likes it, it must be bad, avoid it. If other people are doing it and they're having fun, you should not go near it. That joy is also against, pushes against modern relativistic freedom and hedonism. Do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. We're all gonna die. All that matters is that you're happy right now. What I've found is the more I have pushed into my own understanding of what is promised through Jesus' resurrection and the hope of the eternal resurrection, the more it has elevated good things in this life for me to be able to enjoy in their full because they are my opportunity to anticipate eternity. Let me try to break that down a little bit. One of the things that we see that God is doing in eternity through the resurrection is a restoration to Eden, right? If I got to walk around in Eden, my guess would be I'd be pretty happy. But I also would not be doing whatever I wanted if I was doing it pre-fall. I'd be relating to God, to my fellow humanity, to the creation around me. I'd be working and living and thriving. Fullness of life while walking with God, not just doing whatever I want. And so my hope of eternity and where it's going has also given me the sense that there is a greater joy in following God and his ways than in doing whatever I want. Do you know Paul's ethic of how you should live your life is not you should do this or not do that. It's live now as you will one day in heaven. Live now as you will one day in heaven. So can I go and have sex with whoever I want? Live now as you will one day in heaven. Can I go and get wasted whenever I live now as you will one day in heaven? Can I treat my spouse this live now as you will one day in heaven? It doesn't really matter what I do with my money, it's mine. Live now as you will one day in heaven. And then you will know life to the full. Joy, happiness, peace. Come when you're walking in God's ways, which are the intention of where it's all going. It also has given me, this view of eternity has given me greater joy in the now. I like music, listening to music. I like a lot of different varieties of music. And here's what I've found. As I've understood the fullness of eternity a little bit better and let it play in, I can listen to an album that I love, a band that I love, a piece that I love, but I enjoy it even deeper because I know it is pointing me forward to what God is going to do in heaven. A dinner with friends is not just, oh, that was a good night. If I am thinking eternally, that dinner with friends, both the food and the friendship and the laughter and the conversation is an anticipation of what God is going to do in heaven. It is the acorn to the, to the oak tree. This fall, I love fall, and I love when the leaves change, but this fall was muted, and yet I remember walking around just giving thanks to God for the changing of the leaves, because even though they only last a couple of weeks in eternity, they won't. 
And this is a foretaste of the beauty that we will get to see one day forever. Every joy that I can take advantage of when I have that eternal perspective is deepened. It's strengthened. My enjoyment is greater because in the process of enjoying it, I'm also worshiping the creator. And that thankfulness and hopefulness of what is to come. A right view of eternity gives us joy. It also deepens our purpose in daily life. It's not just joy, it's purpose. There's some version of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 that suggests that the things that we do, including ourselves, are lasting. Some of what we do may last. Your work and your relationships are what I want to talk about a little bit, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's some sense in which that continuity that Paul's talking about suggests that your labor in the Lord will last. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says almost the same thing. That day when the Lord comes will show what you've built, whether it's lasting or not lasting. But what's interesting is when you build a whole theology of where it's all going, it, this, this particular stuff looks more like what you do for God's kingdom, right? So what you do for God's kingdom may last. But when you have a full view of the kingdom of God, you recognize that God's kingdom is not just about souls to heaven. It's about all that God is doing from creation to the final revelation. In the creation, God creates us in his image and then gives us the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Bring shalom over the whole earth. He calls Adam and Eve to tend the garden, which is to take the chaos outside of the garden and make it more fruitful. The intention was to fill the whole earth with the garden. And then it all goes somewhere, right? It begins in a garden. We've talked about this before in, in Eden. But it ends where? In a city, which is construction. It's buildings. It's roads. That is a, that is a jungle Turn to a garden, turn to a village, turn to a city, to the city of God. And then there's the picture of what God is going to do in the new creation in Isaiah, which involves houses and vineyards and people eating together and nations bringing in their goods, meaning whatever it is that that nation makes, they bring to the Lord. In other words, I think that what Paul is talking about is that your work, all of your work, has the potential to be something that lasts. There is continuity between the acorn and the oak tree. And there may be continuity between how you live your life and the work and giftings that you have that has something that is building for eternity. And so you have to ask at each turn, could what you do or make or build or create last forever? Those cookies you make may last forever. That contract and the way that you did it establishes a way of doing contracts in eternity. That term paper was so good, it is going to last for eternity or some version thereof. It is the seed of what God is doing in eternity. Your work matters because of the resurrection. And secondly, your relationships matter. We've been talking about relationships all the past three months. So I want to 
fix on this towards the end of our time here. In Eden, let's go back to that again, because the end in the resurrection is based on the beginning. In Eden, Adam is living in complete peace, shalom, wholeness, relational wholeness with God, with Eve, and with the creation around him, and even with himself. As it says they're talking about the man and the woman, they were naked and not ashamed. Completely open and trusting and vulnerable and committed and protective and selfless and loving. That was where it began. Then Jesus comes along when asked about the resurrection and future life and he says there's no marriage in heaven. And some people are like, oh gosh, would there no marriage? And other people are like, thank goodness, no marriage. In some ways, this is because the true spouse is Christ. And regardless of whether you are married or are never married, Christ is the spouse for all of us. But the second is because the best of a marriage, the best of a marriage is that openness and vulnerability and trust and commitment of Eden that's pointing ahead to the day when we are in that same relational depth and openness and connection with all people, with all people. Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven, but do you know what he does seem to hint at? There are friends in heaven. Huh. At the Last Supper, he says to the disciples, I will not drink of this vine, of the, of the vine again, until the kingdom of God. And he's sitting there with the disciples around a table. I'm not going to eat and drink with you again until the kingdom comes. And what are the two things that are two of the biggest displays of Jesus' resurrection life after the Easter morning? They are breaking bread with his friends in that house uh, after the road to Emmaus. And that time in the end of John when they're sitting around a campfire and Jesus cooks up a camp breakfast for his friends to come and sit and enjoy. Let's eat together, guys. Let's have some time together. We'll be doing that forever. There seems to be continuity and lastingness to friendship depth. Relationships of trust and openness and commitment will be the norm. And that's what a marriage is at its best, is a deep friendship. And deep friendships can be cultivated inside of marriages and outside of marriages, in singleness, with family, without. Paul is pointing to the gospel points to that relationships matter. So as we end our thinking about relationships, I want to just push you on a couple of areas because this is the end of us talking about relationships and friendships and cultivating community and family. How do we live now into relationships that anticipate eternity? Three things to commit to. Commit to place. Consider committing to a place. We live in a transient and upwardly mobile culture which makes it very hard to have long-term relationships. Relationships are hard enough because we're all selfish and sinful, but some version of proximity to the people that are in your life and that you want to be in their lives matters. So consider committing to a place, even if you're at a place where you could make choices otherwise. Secondly, commit your rhythms. All of us have rhythms of life. Did you know that most people eat like 21 meals in a week? That's one of the rhythms of your life, when and how you eat breakfast, when and how you eat lunch, your dinner. Commit your rhythms of life to the possibility of relationships being a part of that. 
that when you're watching the game or walking the dog or doing yard work or running errands or eating one of those 21 meals, it would involve other people, a friend, a new friend, an old friend, a family member. Notice the rhythms of your life and be intentional about being relational in them. And third, this is the obvious one, commit to relationships themselves. Think of a few people that you can commit to and talk about it. And it's probably going to involve some version of sacrifice to commit to relationships. Some of you will have to sacrifice career mobility in order to commit to relationships. You'll need to sacrifice your resources, like maybe open your home if you're married to somebody who's single, to a fellow or an intern. Opening your home cultivates relationships. Sacrifice your autonomy, saying, I want to live a life in relationship to others and not just make choices by myself or even just with my spouse. There is a joy and there's a purpose of living life with a view of eternity. And it's built on a hope that cannot be shaken no matter what happens. In verses 24 and 25, Paul says, Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. We live in a broken and suffering and sinful world. But Christ defeated death. Paul underlines this again and again. Christ has defeated death and all that is symbolically tied up in that. And do you know what that means? That means that you can have hope no matter what. I do not have hope that Christ Church Vienna will last forever. I don't. Christian America probably will not last forever. It may get harder to believe in the God that you believe in. You may lose in life, but in Christ, you will not lose forever. Paul's aim is to make it clear that Christianity is not about you succeeding or getting ahead or even being or becoming a better person. Rather, the gospel is about God's upheaval and overthrow of all the powers and ways of life that are apart from him, whether they're status and wealth and inness or freedom, or Satan, or Caesar. Jesus' death and resurrection overcame and defeated all of them. Every alternative value and cultural system. To come to Jesus is not to learn some moral lesson about how to be a good man or woman. It is to come under the one who is truly man and fully God. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he reigns forever. That's the source of my hope, no matter what in this life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, we live losing sight so much about your reign and lordship, about your defeat of death, and the hope of eternal life in, uh, in you. We lose sight of that perspective and we live selfishly and fearfully. Give us trust to see in the risen Christ our hope and give joy and purpose and hope to the life we live. In Jesus' name, amen.